Well, welcome. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. And last week we started our series in the book of Exodus. And last week we looked at God's sovereignty displayed over the nation of Israel as they were in this really brutal time in their history. Uh, we, we opened Exodus chapter 1 and we, we saw that the Pharaoh of Egypt had set out to, his goal was li- really to limit the population growth of the people of Israel that was just skyrocketing up in population. And so he set around a number of ways of doing that. He, he set about by working them to death through slavery. And when that wasn't successful, he turned to, to demanding that the midwives kill the newborn baby boys of the, of the Israelites in the very room where their mother had just given birth. And when they refused to do that, when they, when they feared God, then he turned to a state-sponsored, uh, you know, gender-based genocide against the baby boys in the, in the land of Israel. It was a brutal, it was a brutal time in the history of Israel. And, and it seemed as though not only was it brutal, but that God was not there. And yet as we looked more closely into that chapter, we saw that indeed not only was God at work in the midst of that, but that he was sovereign over all that was happening there. That's where this story in Exodus 1 ended last week. And this week, as we pick it up at the beginning of Exodus chapter 2, it's like as if the focus moves from this broad view of what God is doing in the nation of Israel, and it zooms in on this one family, and in particular, on this one little baby boy. And so we want to look at what the story says in Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is what it says. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him a, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the child went and called the the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now in the midst of the sufferings and the agonies of the people of Israel, a child is born. A son is given. And he's born to these parents who have this great faith. In fact, if you look in Hebrews chapter 11, which is this chapter about these great heroes of the faith, uh, along with listing people like Noah and Abraham and and Jacob and uh, Joseph and Samuel and David and the prophets, along with all of those, the writer of Hebrews also lists Moses' parents as being people of great faith. And, and And in the midst of the evil and of the chaos of the world that they find themselves, God grants them to give birth to a child and they give birth to a baby boy. And when they see the baby boy, they 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 look, they say, This is a fine child. And they hide him for three months. Now, when it says that Moses was a fine child, that doesn't mean that he was any different than any other child. It wasn't like he was born with a halo or or that he was like the most beautiful baby you'd ever seen. He was just like any other 
baby boy that was born. Uh, uh, but just like any parents in any age that have a baby, it doesn't matter how, you know, how pudgy or wrinkled or bald or hairy that child is, even if everyone else is kind of like, oh, that's not the prettiest baby in the world, to the parents, that baby is the finest child ever. And this was the case for Moses' parents. They looked at this little baby boy and they loved him instantly because he was a fine, fine baby boy. And so they decide that they are going to hide him because they know that instantly, because he is a baby boy, his life is in imminent and immediate danger. And so for three months, they hid that boy. And you can imagine how stressful, how hard that would have been. I mean, a baby, baby cries day and night at the top of their lungs. And there would have been nosy neighbors saying like, hey, what, where's the baby you had? And, and there would have been possibly those who would have been glad to report a baby boy to the authorities in turn for some some desperate favor that they longed for from the authorities. There would have been possibly Egyptian soldiers sweeping through the Israelite place where they lived, looking for baby boys. And so for three months, at great risk to their own lives and obviously to the risk of their baby boy, they hid that boy until it was impossible to hide him anymore. And then they went and they made a basket out of reeds. They covered it with pitch and tar so that it would float. And then they took their precious baby boy that they loved so deeply, and they set him gently in that little basket, and they put him in the reeds by the side of the Nile River, in, in the Nile River. Now, a couple of things we need to know, you need to know about that. First of all, this thing was not, that they did was not entirely uncommon in that day. But putting a, a baby boy or a baby in a basket in a river was the ancient equivalent of putting a, a child in a basket and leaving it outside someone's home or outside a fire station or outside a medical clinic. It was a way of saying, you know, hopefully someone is going to, to care for this baby. And so Moses' parents wouldn't have been the first nor the last Israelite parents to, to, to do this thing with their baby. Because, and it was also helpful because technically, if the Egyptian soldiers came and questioned what happened to that baby boy that they'd heard reported about, they could in good faith say, well, we put him in the Nile River. But of course, that wouldn't have meant that he was safe. Every Egyptian who lived along the Nile River who came across a basket with a little baby boy in it would have known full well that that baby boy was an Israelite boy because who else, no one else would have put their, their precious child in a basket in the river. And it would have been so simple for, for them to simply rip a hole in the bottom of that basket and shove it out into the deeper waters, the fast-moving waters of the Nile and watch as that baby simply sunk and drowned there along the way. So what Moses' parents did when they put their, their precious baby boy in a basket in the river was a scary thing to do. But for parents who had faith in a sovereign God, it was also an act of, of faith. It was, it was also an act of trust in him. You know, the Hebrew word that is used here for basket is only used in one other area of the, of the Old Testament. It's used in Genesis chapter 6 to 8, where the same word is translated as the word ark. And it's used in reference to Noah and the ark, and this ark that God kept Noah safe in during the, during the flood. And really what, what, what Moses' parents are doing out of faith is that they're putting their precious boy in an ark and entrusting him to the waters, and in the midst of the storm and the danger there, they're entrusting him to God, and trusting that God would care for him. And so they do that, and then they leave that little baby boy, but they want to know what happens. And so they send their older daughter, Miriam, she's probably 10 or 12 years old, to just watch 
and see what would happen. But the fact of the matter is that baby boy was as good as dead unless God in his grace rescued him, unless God is somehow did something for that boy. And that's exactly what God did. Of all of the people in the entire land of Egypt to come by that day, along the vast river of the Nile, it's a massive river, to find that particular basket, the person who found it was none other than the daughter of Pharaoh himself. And when she sees the basket, she has it brought over to him, and she knows full well when she opens it that this is one of the babies that belonged to the Israelites. But rather than ordering one of her servants to rip a hole in it and, and to shove it out into the Nile River, instead she has compassion on that baby. And more than compassion, right then and there she decides that she's going to adopt this particular baby as her own. No doubt against the wishes and definitely against the command of her very own father. You see, this is the sovereignty of God in Moses' life. He was as good as dead. Just, just another Hebrew boy floating in a basket in the, in the edge of the Nile. But God, in his mercy and by his sovereign design, chose this boy because he had good plans and good purposes for him. And, and he wanted to fulfill them in his life. And, you know, we see this pattern all throughout the Bible. All throughout the Bible, God chooses those who are as good as dead, those who are the least, those who, those who are the most helpless, those who are sometimes despised. And he chooses them, in fact, because they're not, they're not the, the best, the brightest, the most amazing, but simply because he can. And he chooses them because in their lives, he wants to fulfill his, his ways and his purposes for them. And we see this. I mean, he chooses Abraham and Sarah, a couple who cannot in their own have a baby. He chooses them to be the, the father uh, of many nations. He chooses Jacob over Esau before either of them are even born, just because he can, because he wants to say, I chose Jacob, not because of anything that he did, but because I'm a sovereign God, and I want Jacob to fulfill my plans and purposes. He, he chooses Moses while he's a baby before he can prove his use, his leadership skills, anything to God. He says, this is who I'm going to work through. He chooses David, though he was the youngest of all the sons in his family, just a shepherd boy out in the field that they didn't even think was worthy to invite to stand before Samuel. He chooses him to be king over Israel. You see, this is what the sovereign God of all creation does. He takes those who can't do anything in their own strength, those who have nothing to offer in their own strength, and he chooses them to fulfill his will and his good purposes. And you know the same is true? For you and me. Not on the same level as Abraham or Moses or David, but nevertheless to fulfill his purposes for us in the world that he has put us in. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to the church, to the followers of Jesus in, in the church of Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, God says, when he came to us, when he chose you and me, we were dead. Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. We were enamored by the things of the world, by the spirit of the age. We, we were drawn to our sins, and, and, and really like all of creation, we were due the wrath of God. But then he goes on to say this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
He starts this way, he says, but God. But God was the one who initiated. It was God who chose us, even while we're still rebelling against him. It was God who, who pursued us and who, by his grace, chose us. And in case you still think that somehow it was you who, in your goodness, invited God into your life, it was your your kindness to him that you would allow him in, or that you somehow earned enough brownie points in God's eyes to be considered someone that he would choose, Paul drives home a point. He says this, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works so that no one can boast. Here's the point you cannot afford to miss. God chose you. Not not because of anything that you've done, not because you were better than anyone else, but simply because in his sovereignty, he wants you. And here's why he chose you to know and to follow him. Look at what he says next. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says, God chose you because he created you, but also because he has prepared good works for you to do, good plans for you to do, that he's already prepared in advance. In other words, God has plans and purposes for you to fulfill in your life. And that's why he chose you to follow him. And we see this in Moses' life, and you should see it in your life. Because it makes a huge difference in how you understand the things that happen in your life when you understand that God chose you and he's got plans and purposes for you. This is the first thing that we need to see in this passage. God in his sovereignty chooses those that he is going to work through. But then secondly, in order to accomplish his will and his purposes, God uses whatever means he desires. Look again at Moses' life. He, he, he begins, I mean, God uses these parents, these Parents have such faith, first to hide him for three months, and then in faith to put him in this basket in the river. But God also uses a 10 or 12-year-old little girl. She's standing there watching her, her baby brother in this basket in the reeds by the river when Pharaoh's daughter and her entourage come by. And Pharaoh's daughter sees this baby, and, and the baby is crying. And you know when a baby's crying, I mean, you, you rock the baby, you, you, you sing a little bit to the baby, you, you bounce the baby, you check to, you know, see if it needs to be changed. But eventually you know that that baby is going to need to be fed. And if the baby isn't fed, you end up with a crisis. And this little girl, this quick-thinking, confident little girl, steps forward to the daughter of Pharaoh, and says, would you like me to get a nurse from the Israelite ladies to come and to nurse this baby for you? And, and, and the, the, the daughter of the Pharaoh of Egypt says, yes. And, and it's brilliant, but it's more than brilliant. It's God's plans being worked out through the actions of a little, a little young girl. And you see, you, we never should underestimate the kinds of things that God can and will do through our children or our grandchildren or our nieces or our nephews or the, the children that you see around the church. You see, God gladly works through their lives as much as he does through our lives. That's why at our church, we put such value on next generation ministries. That's why when you bring your children to church, we don't simply babysit them for an hour so you can come here. It's why we teach them that there's a God who created them and a God who loves them, and a God who sent his own son to die for them, and a God who wants to work in their lives and even through their lives as young children. That's why we invest so heavily in our youth and our young adult ministry, because they don't just have fun, but although I, I know that they have lots of fun, but not only do they have fun, but they also, 
I mean, they teach the word of God unambiguously and they walk together as they follow Jesus through the the, the junior high and and senior high years of their life. And, And they're invited and challenged and called to follow God in these years of their life as well. Moses, Miriam, Uh, Moses' sister Miriam, this 10 or 12-year-old girl, offers to find a nurse for this baby. And when when Pharaoh's daughter says yes, she goes immediately to her mother, to Moses' mother, and brings her back to Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter not only asks her to raise this little boy for her, uh, but also offers to pay, which is a beautiful thing. I mean, anyone who's had kids knows it would be nice if somebody paid us to raise our own kids. And you know, in the midst of the chaos and the evil of the world that Moses' parents find them in, this is one of those little graces of God. One of these unexpected mercies and kindnesses that God pours into their life. And you know, sometimes we find ourselves in the middle of hard situations. And it's important to understand that we serve a good and a sovereign God. And in the middle of our hard situations, even though we might not see exactly what he's doing, even though we might not understand where he's going and where he's leading us. Don't miss those little graces, those unexpected kindnesses that God puts in your life. It's him saying, don't worry. You may not know, but I'm here and I'm at work and I'm caring for you. And here's just a little sign that I've got you, that in the end, it will all work out. And so Moses is given back to his mother for her to to nurse. And in those days, in the ancient world, children were nursed until they were three or four years of age, which means that now his parents have him back for the next three, four, if they can stretch it out, maybe five years. And these are such key years in, in the development of their son. I mean, three, four, maybe five years before they have to turn their son over to the powerful education system of Egypt. Three, four, five years where they can teach them about the God of all creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who chose Moses and rescued him out of the Nile River. The sociological research on the spiritual development of children and youth is abundantly clear. When it comes to the big questions of life, the the spiritual questions about what, what life is about and and why they're here, and what, where, where is God, and, and what does it mean? They've done surveys, and they, they've asked kids, where is the number one place that you go? And do you know the number one place that kids go when they need answers to the big questions of life, when they want to know about spiritual things? Number one place that they go, mom. A close second. Number two place that they turn to, dad. The, the number three place and the number four place that kids Youth and children turn to, for those kinds of answers, you know what it is? Grandma and grandpa. Number five, place, uncle or aunt. Number six, friends. Number seven, youth pastor. Number seven is youth pastor. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't send your kids to youth. You should definitely send your kids to youth. It should be a priority in their week. You go to youth. But if you think that somehow bringing your kids to church on a Sunday morning and sending them to youth once a week is going to be the primary way that they learn, about spiritual things, about God and how to live this life, you're missing one of the greatest opportunities that God has given you in his life. You know, and the people that are most important in your life, your, your, your children, your grandchildren, your, your nieces and nephews, they're looking primarily to you to be the one to train them in godliness and what it means to follow God. Now, that, that doesn't mean that somehow you've got to, you know, put on a two-hour 
training on Saturday mornings in Wesleyan or Reformed theology and, and the finer points of all of that. No, no. Moses himself, later in his life, he gives instructions to parents for how it is that they ought to teach their children about God. This is what he says. He says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses, on, on your gates. In other words, just bring God into the conversation as you live your life. Talk about God when you drive to soccer practice, when you sit down at the supper table, when, when, you, when you finish watching a movie with your kids, whether it's a good movie or not. I mean, you know, put a little bit of art on your walls that point to God or the things that you post on your social media or wherever it is. Just bring God into your everyday life and your kids will grow in amazing and profound ways in their love and their knowledge of God. God gives Moses' parents three, four, maybe five years to train up their precious little boy to know God and to follow Him. God uses his parents, in Moses' life. But he also uses Pharaoh's daughter in Moses' life. Now, Pharaoh's daughter, I mean, she was an utterly pagan woman. She knew nothing about the God of Israel. In fact, the reason why she was bathing in the Nile River wasn't because she didn't have a giant palace with a beautiful bath and a bunch of servants that could have heated warm water to give her a beautiful warm bath. The reason why she was bathing in the Nile River is because it was an act of worship to the God of the Nile. It was, it was an, a sign of respect. And when she found Moses, she was in the midst of worshiping the God of the Nile. So this woman is an utterly pagan woman. On top of that, she is the daughter not only of the most powerful man in the entire ancient world, but she is also the daughter of the most evil and wicked man in the ancient world. I mean, she, she's at the very heart of this family that is systematically seeking to destroy the people of Israel. And yet, and yet, this is also that someone that God in his sovereignty is going to use to accomplish his purposes in Moses' life. And this is another aspect of the sovereignty of God. God uses whomever and whatever he so chooses to accomplish his purposes. And, and, and sometimes it's the place that you would least expect. You know, if you read the, the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, it's short, it's only about three chapters long, but it's this this prophet Habakkuk, he, he comes to God in the opening verses of the book of Habakkuk and he says, God, do you see the evil in the land of Judah? Do you see the injustice that your own people are doing? God, how come you're silent? What are you going to do about it? And in verse 5, God answers Habakkuk back. And this is what he says to Habakkuk. He says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. And you can imagine Habakkuk's eyes going wide, like, God, where are you going with this? Well, what are you going to do here? And in the very next verse, God says, I'm going to bring the Babylonians to come and to punish my own people for their sins. And the Babylonians, I mean, they were famous in that day for being ruthless and brutal. In fact, God himself acknowledges this very thing. And he says, I'm going to use this, this brutal, ruthless people to punish my, my, my own people. And Habakkuk is stunned. God, how could you? Them to come and to your people? And God says, just watch me. In fact, you should read the book. It's only three chapters long. And, and Habakkuk comes to see that God's sovereign plan includes using 
even the Babylonians, to accomplish his purposes and his will. You see, that, that's what God gets to do because he is sovereign. He chooses any instrument he desires to accomplish his will. And sometimes it is the least likely of all instruments that you would expect. In fact, the ultimate example of this is the cross that Jesus himself hung on. I mean, God in his, in his plans and his purposes came to defeat sin and to destroy death. You know what he uses to do that? Death itself. He, he uses a crucifixion, probably the most brutal form of death ever devised. And in his sovereign will, his own son submits himself to death to the brutal death, in order to defeat sin and death. See, that's the sovereignty of God. He uses anything that he so chooses. So, here's what we know so far about the sovereignty of God in our own lives. He chooses you. Not because you've earned it, not because you uh, bring you know, such amazing things to the table, but simply because he wants to use you for his purposes and his, and his good pleasure. But then secondly, he chooses to work in your life through whatever means he deems best, whether that's your own mother or the daughter of your worst enemy. But then here's the third thing that you need to understand about God's sovereignty. He works his sovereignty out in your life, regardless of whatever situation you find yourself in. Very rarely does God remove us from difficult circumstances when he wants to work out his sovereign plans in our life. Rather, in fact, almost without fail, God works not only in spite of our circumstances, but within and through and alongside of our circumstances. Apostle Paul in Romans 8.18 writes this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He doesn't, you know, Paul doesn't make light of our suffering. In fact, our suffering is very real. It is very significant. But, but neither does he say the sufferings that you endure are from the devil and just flee and get away from those things. That's not his message either. Rather, he says we are to see our sufferings in light of what God is doing, in light of his broader plans and purposes. And Paul carries on this train of thought uh, onward through the chapter 8 of Romans until he comes to verse 28 where he says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, in the midst of the trials that you experience in your life, in the midst of the suffering and the chaos and, and all of those things, God is at work in your life, working all of those things together for your good because he chose you, because he has plans and purposes for you. And, and again, we see this displayed in Moses' life. You know, when God chose Moses, he didn't just whisk him out of the chaos of Egypt. He, his family was still in brutal slavery. His life was still in imminent danger when he was born. Innocent children all around him were being killed simply because they were Israelite and they were male. And even, even his rescue at the hands of Pharaoh was a different kind of danger. You know, at the age of four or five or maybe six, if they could stretch it, Moses' parents came and brought Moses to the house of Pharaoh. I wonder if you can imagine what it, what it would have been like for Moses' mother on that day. I mean, after they'd exchanged kisses for the last time and she'd give the final instructions to her son and, you know, maybe lick down a few hairs that were, were out and straighten his clothing. She would have taken her son, her precious son that she'd poured so much into over the last years and would have presented him to become Pharaoh's daughter. 
And she would have known, she would have never known if she would have seen him again because who was she in Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's daughter's eyes? I mean, she was just the nurse. She, she was just a slave woman. She, she was just a member of the, the Israelites, this, this nation that was despised and, and hated among the Egyptians. In that moment, she would have, she probably thought she would have never seen her son again. And her young, impressionable son that she poured so much into would have entered into all the power and the grandeur of the mightiest family on earth. And they would have taken that young, impressionable boy and they would have begun immediately to train him in all the ways of Egypt. I mean, they would have trained him by the finest tutors of the land in the protocol and the lifestyle and the culture of the Egyptians. Many years later, in the book of Acts, it records Stephen giving a speech outlining the history of the people of Israel. And when he comes to this portion of Moses' life, he says this, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deed. That expression, all the wisdom of the Egyptians, that was a colloquial saying of the day. It was like us saying he was a rocket scientist. I mean, Moses got the finest training in all the world at that time. They would have started by bringing him to the, to the temple of the sun, which was like the, the ancient version of Oxford in that day. And they would have started by teaching him hieroglyphics. And from there, they would have taught him medicine and science and astronomy and chemistry and, and, and law and philosophy. And they would have taught him and trained him in all of the, the religion of the Egyptians and all of the theology of, of the Egyptian beliefs. On top of that, they would have immersed him in Egyptian literature and taught him the arts and, and taught him the great history of Egypt. And, and really, they would have taught him and immersed him in all of the Egyptian culture and thinking. And he was also, Stephen tells us in Acts, he was also mighty in word and deed. And here he's referring to the fact that, that Moses would have been taught to become an officer in the Egyptian army. He would have been trained to be a leader of men. In fact, the ancient historian Josephus tells us that when, when Moses was in his 30s, the Ethiopians invaded the land of Egypt and had military success after military success against the Egyptians until finally they turned to the young man Moses in his 30s and said, you go and lead an army against the Ethiopians. And that's what he did. This young man in his 30s led an army, but rather than going straight up the Nile and facing the Ethiopians head on, he led his army through the desert came behind the Ethiopians and utterly routed them and defeated them. But the reason why they weren't expecting him to attack from behind is because in the Egyptian desert, in that place, was a particularly venomous, uh, poisonous snake. And there was tons of them. There's thousands of these snakes keeping anyone from being able to pass through that region. And so Moses brilliantly asked every person in his army to capture a bird called an eeb and to put it in a basket and to bring it with them. And the eeb was the the natural predator of those snakes. And when they got to that part of the desert, they opened these baskets and the birds flew out and cleared out all the snakes ahead of them and the army was able to go through. I mean, Moses was brilliant, incredibly strategic, a leader of men. And in fact, uh, many historians believe that he was being groomed by the daughter of Pharaoh to become the next Pharaoh of Egypt. In fact, she had named her son Moses, which means... I drew him out of the water, which was both a reference to the fact that she found him in the water, but also to the fact that she drew him out of Israel to become her own. I mean, she did everything in her power to turn him into an Egyptian and to make him the next ruler of her nation. And for parents who raise their son 
to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, they must have been so worried about, I mean, how would their young, impressionable little boy, how how would the the teenager, how would a, a young man possibly resist the pressures of the might and the power and the, and the majesty of all of Egypt. I mean, how would, he, how would he resist the lure of Egypt and all that it had to offer and the, and the power that lay before him? I mean, what, what was to keep their son from becoming not only the leader of Egypt, but in an effort to prove his loyalty to Egypt and to his new adopted family, what would have kept him from becoming the most brutal pharaoh ever? over the, the people of Israel. You see, God, God doesn't remove that kind of pressure from the life of Moses. He doesn't just whisk him away and, and, and put him in another place. Instead, he's at work in the midst of it all. Instead, he's working it all for his good purposes. So that when he's done more hard work in Moses' life, and we're going to look at that next week, but when he's done more hard work, what he's done in Moses' life has prepared him to be exactly the person to lead his people out of Egypt. I mean, no one understood better the culture of Egypt than Moses. No one understood better the language and the mindset and the personalities in charge of Egypt. No one understood better uh, uh, how to get access to the corridors of power. No one was less intimidated than he would have been as he came before Pharaoh himself. No one was better because God didn't remove him from the presence of and the pressures and the temptations of Egypt, but rather worked all things together for good because he loved Moses and was using him to to fulfill his plans and purposes. You see, because, because of the sovereignty of God, the boy whose name was whose whose name meant I drew him out of water would be used by God to lead his people out of the waters of the Red Sea and into the into the promised land. Paul says in Romans 8.35, just a few verses after he talks about the fact that God works all things for good for those who trust him, who are called according to his purposes. He says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, in the midst of them, as we walk through them, as we endure patiently, God is forming and shaping and using those circumstances to prepare us and to use us to fulfill his good purposes in our lives. In Isaiah 55, God says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, the sovereignty of God is surely at work among the nations, but is just as surely at work in your individual life, in your situation, where you find yourself right now. It may not seem that obvious to you. In fact, it may not seem obvious at all. But you need to know this, that God chose you. God loves you. In fact, God is at work in your circumstances and he will use whatever means he deems necessary and best to accomplish his good plans in your life because God is sovereign over all. I want us to end this time together by sharing communion together. So I want to invite you to to take some some bread or crackers or whatever you may have available and some juice, something. And I, I want to invite you to just take a moment. We want to share communion together. And communion is remembering that we are in a covenant relationship with this God. 
with the God of all creation. We are in a communion, in a covenant relationship with, with the sovereign God. And he chose you. In fact, not only did he choose you, but he sent his own son to suffer and to die and to pay the price for your sins so that you could be in this relationship with God. And so I want to invite you to join us. Look, the Bible explains that communion is something that is shared among those who have that kind of a relationship with God. So if you're just watching and you're not in that place yet, I'm just so excited that you watch. I just want to invite you to keep exploring. But if you are in a relationship with God, if you're like, yeah, I follow God. I, 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 because of what Jesus has done on the cross, I'm in a relationship with God. I want to ask you, please join me as we share communion together. And Jesus instructed us to share communion. He said this, the first thing he did is he took the bread. And I want to invite you to take the bread or the cracker or whatever it is you have. And I want to invite you, just take a moment of silence and hold that bread. And I want to invite you to confess your sins. I want to invite you to go back and say, God, these are the areas of my life where I haven't been obedient to you, where I haven't been living the way that you called me to. And God, I confess that they're sins and I ask you to forgive me. And so I, I just want to give you a moment to do that and myself right now. bread represents Jesus' broken body. And the Bible tells us that after supper, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. Let's, let's eat it together. And then the cup. Again, I don't know what you're using to symbolize Jesus' blood, but I invite you to take whatever that is and to pour it out and to, to share it if you're there with others. And then I want to invite you again to pick it up. And I just want you to hold it for a moment again. And, and now I want to invite you to think about God's grace in your life. That He would choose you. That He loves you so deeply. That He has good plans and purposes. I want to invite you to thank Him. To bless Him. To worship Him. And then we'll share it together. So just take a moment and do that. The Bible says in the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup. And, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this whenever you do in remembrance of me. Let's drink it together. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you. God, we thank you that you chose us. Of all the people, of all the, the, the options there in your grace, you chose us to be your sons and your daughters. God, we thank you for that. We bless you for that, for your goodness and your kindness in our lives. And, and Father, then not only did you choose us, but you entered into a, a covenant relationship with us through your son, Jesus. And Father, we want to walk in light of that. We want to live our lives daily in light of the fact 
that Jesus gave his life for us. And so today, again, we commit our lives to you wherever we find ourselves, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, whether our world is going good or medium or if it's going really hard, God, we say, we proclaim again, you are the sovereign God and that we trust you and that we love you and that we'll follow you wherever you lead us. We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.